some place and someone and something to hope in. Now, hope isn't, when we talk about hope, many times we say, well, I hope this happens, like it's a questionable situation. But in, in the Bible, the God of all hope, hope means a confident expectation of good. And you can always be confident of a good outcome when you're looking to God, trusting in God, and following after God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Woo! I don't know about you, but there are days that I'm saying, God, I'm not sure how this is going to work out, but I know who's going to work it out. And, and our confidence is in God. So uh, before you're seated, um, I just want to dismiss any children, any children, any children, any children. They're all out there. So the rest of you take a couple of moments and greet each other and you can be seated. Well, thank you for being here today. Thank you for connecting at home. We're grateful that uh, you've connected here today. Um, you know, we sang when we see, your, see you, we have strength to face the day. Um, Erica was talking about how challenging life can be and how hard it is. And, and I don't think that's anything any of us would argue. Uh, we're living in very challenging times. And the Bible tells us that the times that we're living in, that is a characteristic. There are going to be difficult times. But no matter what we face, we never have to face them alone as a child of God. Now, that's something that we have to intentionally remind ourselves of because there are times where we look at what we're facing and we think, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do this? But not remembering that you're never having to do anything alone. As a, as a child of God, God is always there. God always cares. He, so much so that he chose to take up residence in you by his spirit. There's no place you can go that God can be any closer. And yet, no matter where we go, if we don't look to him, we can feel alone. And a feeling is not accurate, but it's still what we can choose to believe in instead of believing the truth. When we believe the truth that God is there, that he cares, that he wants to help us experience the abundant life, then no matter what we face, we're going to have this confident expectation of good, this hope, uh, and, and be able, not in that moment to melt down or, or to blow up, but to settle into the fact that we know God has a plan, and that plan is for good. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you for good, and not for evil, with a future and a hope. God is so good, and, and we, we in this hour, we need to remember and remind ourselves that God is there. God's never taken by surprise. Isn't that good? I don't know. I'm glad he, he's not taken by surprise. I'm taken by surprise all the time. He's never overwhelmed. He's never overthrown. He's never in fear, and he never fails. That's your God. 
That's the one that lives in you. That's the one that has plans for you. That's the one that walks with you. That's the one that wants to provide for you to be overwhelmingly more than a conqueror. And I can share all these things, but it's a choice whether you're going to receive it and believe it and then live it. Because if we, if we do, the world around us isn't going to change to get better. And the Bible promises us that it's not going to get easier, it's going to get darker, people are going to grow more corrupt. But you and I are in this world, not of this world. And as much as it's getting darker in the world, the light of Jesus Christ is shining brighter and brighter in the lives of his people. Amen? And that just makes us more visible for people to come to the way, the truth, and the life, for us to, to point them towards Jesus. Amen? Um, and, and so we, we should not be overwhelmed in these days that are overwhelming because we know God has a plan and we know God is, is working in the world. And as much as as the world is being overwhelmed and overcome by fear. You know, the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out all fear. And God is love. All we have to do is turn to him and trust in him. And, and that's a discipline. You know, the Bible tells us we have to be aware of what we're thinking on and what we're focused on and, and what we're allowing to come in. I was, Debbie and I had a couple of days away for our anniversary. She, uh, she has been so good to me for 44 years. But we had some time away and, and uh, got to connect with my pastor, Pastor Jonathan and Verna Del Turco. And, and uh, we were just talking about the fact that this is a crazy time to be alive in, but it's the most glorious time for the church. As dark as it's getting, uh, we as the church, God, God is causing the church to be transformed, continuing transformed to be who God has for us to be so we can do what God has for us to do to be a witness in the earth to show people that in the midst of of all hell breaking loose heaven is available and and ready willing and able to help um, but we've been, been finding out about this love um, this love that casts out all fear when you know you're loved you know you can be in the worst of situations think about this as a kid if you were in a really insurmountable situation that was really really scary and all of a sudden somebody showed up now it would depend on who that person is when they showed up but that person you knew that person loved you and cared about you and and would do anything to protect you and provide for you that circumstance would not have changed but everything would have changed in you all of a sudden there would have been a settling down a peace that would would begin to over Whelm that fear that you once had. And, and that's where we need to realize that God is, is there. He cares. And uh, our circumstances aren't going to change for the better. The Bible tells us it's going to grow darker and more desperate. But what's changing, always changing, should always be changing is us. We're supposed to be always transforming to be more and more living the characteristics of God, the characteristics of love. Because that love is, is what will never fail. The Bible tells us that in 1 Corinthians 13. And we've been looking at this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. It says this, Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. 
you know, God has given us himself to live in us by his spirit, and God is love. So there's love dwelling in us, but God also wants us to clothe ourselves and wrap, envelop ourselves, wrap ourselves in that love because that's what connects us. It's what builds those bridges and keeps the bridges strong. If, if we aren't walking in this love, there are all sorts of things every day that come into our lives that are looking to break down the bridges, the connections, the relationships we have with other people. And, and the enemy's behind that, and he's doing a magnificent job and getting a lot of mileage out of what he's doing, and we shouldn't fall prey to it. But unfortunately, we as human beings, there, there are times we get deceived, and uh, we fall prey to the enemy's work, and it causes us to be divided, and we know what, what happens to anything divided. What does the Bible tell us about when something's divided, a house, a kingdom, a nation, a family, a church? Yeah, it falls. It won't stand. It'll be brought to desolation. That means there's nothing life-giving there. When, when something's def desolate, you know, you don't want to go out there and build your house, okay? So it'll be brought to desolation, nothing life-giving. And that's what, not what God wants. God is a life-giving God. Jesus came that we would have life and life more abundant. And so uh, we, we need to realize that there is a force working in the world, and rightfully so because man gave the enemy a place, but now we're standing with God in the place of seeing things redeemed, rescued from loss. And, and the way it's done is through love, that perfect love that casts out all fear, that perfect love that unites and binds us together in perfect harmony. Um, but we're living in times that that is not the norm. The norm in our society we read about in Matthew chapter 24, and I just want to quickly look at this. In verse 4, it says this. Jesus was speaking to the disciples. They were asking him, you know, Lord, what's going to be the sign of your return and the end of the age? And his immediately answer, his first answer, first words out of his mouth to his disciples who were asking that question is, Jesus said to them, take heed that you don't be deceived. Now, we're seeing deception all over in our society. And, and what's the antidote for deception? Truth. And where is truth found? Be careful. Because our, our society believes truth can be found in everyone, everywhere. Because today, society believes that that truth is relative. There's no absolute truth. Don't be so, so <laughs> rigid. I, I, this word came to me, and it's because we've been watching these English cooking shows, stodgy. Uh, I don't even know if that fits. But don't be so rigid. You know, truth can be found anywhere, in anyone. We all have our truth. That's deception. I can believe what I believe. It doesn't make it true. It just makes it what I believe. And I can believe it with all my heart and believe it sincerely, but I'm sincerely wrong if it's not truth. There's only one place. This is rejected by the world that you and I live in. There's one place we can find truth, and that's the Word of God. The Bible says that God's Word is truth. And what truth does is it sets free. What truth does is it brings light. The entrance of God's word brings light. When you don't have light, 
it's real easy to be deceived. And I'm telling you right now, we live in a very dark world that is not willing to receive the light of God's word. And so they're falling into more deception. And we all have deception in our lives. And we need the light of God's word, the truth of God's word to set us free, to illuminate what's going on and what needs to be adjusted, and to help us transform into who God has for us to be and, and empower us to do what he has for us to do. But he says, do not be deceived. And in these days, there is so much deception that is running rampant and people are promoting things that are not true, which is deceptive in its very nature. If I don't have truth, it's deceptive. And that deceptive aspect of it causes us to be ripped off and to lose what God has provided and intends for us to have. And dropping down in verse 10, it, he goes on to say this to his disciples. He gives other characteristics, uh, but he says these are characteristics that will be part of this time of the last days of when he's about to return in the end of the age. Many will be offended and will betray one another and hate one another, and then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, there's a lot there, and we don't have time to unpack it all, but, but I want you to see it says many will be offended, offended. And we're seeing that all over. If, if I don't accept your truth and I think your truth is not real, I can be offended by you trying to push your truth on me, your personal truth, and you could be offended that I wouldn't receive your truth. So there's offense on both sides. And then how many of you know we just aren't offended in isolation? If I'm offended, the likelihood is I may, may talk to somebody else and say, do you believe what this person was trying to convince me of? And all of a sudden I spread that offense to somebody else in the offense that division continues to grow and grow and grow. And that's where we are today in our society. We are so offended, we are so divided, we are so splintered, we are, are so antagonistic towards each other. Are you seeing this? Yeah. And, and we shouldn't be surprised because the Bible warns us this is going to happen. Many are going to be offended and they're going to come to the place of betraying one another and hating one another. We're seeing that too. Betrayals of friends, lifelong friends, BFFs. Crazy stuff. But this is the world we're living in. This is the time we're living in. This is the work of the enemy in the world. Because anything divided will be brought to desolation. And yet God is working the other way. It goes on to say many false prophets will arise and deceive many. And because of lawlessness, because of lawlessness... That word lawlessness means not having or knowing or acknowledging or abiding by laws. It's happening. We see it happening. You know, we, we had two series that we, we went through as a church uh, quite a while back. One was Undercover. The other one was Honor's Reward. They both were by John Bevere. And it was, they were... They were not milk from the word, they were meat from the word that helped us understand how important it is to be under authority. And the Bible tells us all authority that's in authority is there by God's doing. There's no one that's in authority that, without God's doing. Now, it may not be producing what you and I want, but we don't know the big picture. 
And there are also leaders that are there by God's doing, but they're not doing what God wants them to do. That's another aspect of this. But we found out through these two series that the Bible is very clear on the fact that if it's not immoral, illegal, unethical, or unscriptural, if we're being told to do something by an authority, we need to submit. Now, that grates against all of us. Because there's not a one of us here today that wants to hear somebody tell us what we need to do. Because we have this independent streak in us. And God never in intended us to be independent. He intended us to be interdependent. On him and on one another. But we have this rise up in us. And again, if God's put those people in authority and we choose to ignore what they're saying and it's not illegal... All right, immoral, unethical, or unscriptural, then we really need to honor God by honoring the authority. Now, I'm not talking about doing things blindly or allowing ourselves to be manipulated, but there's a lot of animosity, a lot of anger, a lot of resistance to things that are not illegal, immoral, unethical, or unscriptural. And we need to really check ourselves and see why we're doing what we're doing. I know this isn't a popular message, but it's a necessary message for the hour that we're living in. Because if we're moving away from what God says, we can't expect what God has to be accomplished in our life and through our life. The only way we can do that is as we submit to God. And, and again, we need to be aware of how easy it is to be deceived, to be misled, to be led off track from God. But this says... Many will be offended, and because of lawlessness abounding, the love of many will what? Grow cold. It means the love was there, but it's, it's growing cold. When something grows cold, what happens to it? Physiologically, what happens to, to water when it grows cold? It turns to ice. And the colder it gets, what happens with the molecules in the ice? They get tighter and tighter, denser and denser. The movement in the molecules decreases to the point where if you, if you begin to cool something, it becomes denser or more rigid, inflexible. And if you cool it down enough and it was alive, life ceases to exist in it. And this is talking about the love of many will grow cold. It will progressively become less flexible, more rigid, less life in it to the point it doesn't, doesn't have any left. Now, when it's talking about growing cold, it's a process. It's, it's something that happens over time, usually not being aware of it. Um, it the definition of growing here is to gently and voluntarily uh, proceed to condense, to compress, to become hard and rigid. Now, this morning I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done before. I did it in the first service, and it's because I, I, I'm, I can't say anything other than I feel very directed by God in this, and yet I do it with great hesitation because because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea but before we go any further I, I just would ask you to bow your heads we're going to pray Heavenly Father we thank you for your presence here 
you're always with us. And you have promised where two or more are gathered, you are there in their midst. You're, you're here with us here. You're with every person that's connected online. Um, Father, we need not just your presence. We, we truly need your participation. We need your impartation. And so we look to you and we ask you right now, Father, to speak to our hearts, our lives, our circumstances and situations, and, and reveal your truth. Truth that sets us free, truth that brings life, truth that is, that is health to us and light. Father, we, we are living in a time where we can't rely on our own understanding. We can't rely on all the things externally, but we can rely on you. Uh, we can trust in you with our whole heart and lean not to our own understanding. As we acknowledge you, you'll direct our steps, and that's what we need. So, Father, today, give us wisdom from above. Direct us, guide us, govern us, guard us, and, and cause us to grow. Grow in your grace and in your knowledge that we would be transformed today more like the character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. As I, I, I do so often, I'm, I just sit down and I think about meditate because the Bible tells us how important meditation on the Word of God is. And, and many times I try and meditate on the Word and just kind of roll it over in my mind before I go to sleep. And, and something happened recently that has not happened to me before. Uh, but it, it is scriptural in the fact that the Bible says that in these days that we live in, uh, young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. And I had a dream. And I hesitate to share this from the standpoint that I don't want anybody taking this and saying, oh, this is, this is what God shared with me. I am convicted in my heart. I need to share it with you. And so... I don't, I don't, I rarely ever remember dreams, but there was a dream that I had that as, as I began to experience this dream, I noticed that there was a person in front of me on an island, and this person was surrounded. It was just an individual island. This person was surrounded by very angry, aggressive, dangerous waters, and the person on the island was very hurt, very animated, very aggressive, very angry. And then I noticed to the right of this person, another island. There was another person on that, that island, but very different from the first person. This person on the second island, there was a, a peace. Um, there was the, the, I noticed initially that they were wearing something that I, I, I couldn't explain, I couldn't describe. And I, I, the best description I can tell you is it's nothing I've ever seen on earth. It was unearthly, and yet at the same time, I was very aware that it was glorious. And I watched the interaction between these two people on these two islands with this very angry, dangerous, uh, raging water between them. And the one on the island over here began to pick up stones and throw them at the person on the island across from them. And as that person stood there, the stones came and they hit this garment. And all of a sudden, it was like the garment encased these stones meant to damage that person. And, and they became beautiful 
and I became aware they were very valuable, and they fell into the water. And where they fell into the water, the water became still. And this process happened over and over again. The aggressive person was throwing all these stones, and it would hit this garment and fall in. And this person began to walk out on these stones that had been transformed into something that was precious and valuable, beautiful and valuable, to the point where they walked across to the island that that person that was absolutely out of control on. And as they got to the island, the person that was out of control looked at the person dressed in this garment and began to settle down. And all of a sudden, there was a transformation of that person. And I don't know the interaction of the two people, what had happened. All I can tell you is what I saw. And this person had a garment just like the first person. And they walked back over the stones that had now calmed the water. And as I looked, as far as my eye could see, in every direction I could see people on little islands, angry and aggressive and hurt and throwing stones at each other. And when they would throw stones at each other, they'd throw them back. And all of a sudden, these two that had this unearthly, glorious garment on began to walk towards these others on different islands. And the same thing would happen. The stones would hit them. They'd be enveloped, and they'd drop into the water. The water would be stilled, and they'd walk over, and there'd be a transformation of that life. And as I woke up, I was like, God, I, I don't know what I ate. But, but I really, seriously, I said, God, I need to understand this because I've had this. I believe it's from you, but I don't want to imagine anything or, you know, just take for granted anything. And as, as I had time to kind of process with God, I felt like I was saying, this is, this is what I have. This is what you've been learning. This is what I have for you to do. This garment, this unearthly, glorious garment is being clothed with love and that love is God's Kevlar. Now, I don't know if you know about Kevlar. Kevlar was created to stop bullets from injuring and killing people. And love God has for us to not be injured or destroyed by the stones, the sins, the things that people are throwing at us. As a matter of fact, as love covers a multitude of sins, these sins, these things that are designed by others to injure us, ultimately the enemy trying to injure us, are going to be enveloped because love covers a multitude of sin. They're going to become beautiful and precious and be building bridges to the next person. And as that happens, we come to that person with the love of God. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so when we present God who is love as a loving God and the gospel, people's lives get transformed and all of a sudden they can become enrobed in the love of God. And we are to go to every person in the love of God because it's the love of God that never fails. And so I was, I was just absolutely taken aback by this and, and just said, God, I, 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 this has impressed more on my life the importance of clothing myself, of us clothing ourselves in the love of God. 
you know, just like any bit of clothing, you can choose what you want to choose. And, and you're wearing what you're wearing. I picked on Jeremy. He was in the second row in the first service. He's now over with Quest. But one of the things about Jeremy, if you know him, you know that Jeremy will wear shorts as long as he possibly can. I've watched Jeremy come into the church when it was bitterly cold out with shorts, and I'm like, really? But that's what he chooses to wear. But when we wear the clothing we wear, why do we choose what we choose? Comfortable. Thank you. I, I've got somebody that's bold enough to say something. Comfortable because it's the style we like. It presents us the way we want to be seen. But there's another aspect of this. And we know up here that we wear clothes for the environment, all right, for the circumstance we're going to be in. If, if we're going to get rain, most likely we're going to either wear, get an umbrella or wear a raincoat. When the snow comes, you're not coming in in shorts, most likely, and no shirt. I know some people do, and their just metabolism is off the charts, but that's another. But we, we, because of what we're in the midst of, we wear certain clothes. And you and I are in the midst of a world that is hurt, that is angry, that is aggressive, that is damaging each other. And, and because of that, we, as God's people, need to be not only clothed in the robe of righteousness, but wearing that garment of love for our sakes and for their sakes. Because without that, we're just going to get into the fray with them. You know as well as I do, if somebody threw a rock at you and hit you and hurt you, what your natural tendency to be would be to pick up that rock or a bigger one and throw it back at them, to hit them and hurt them. And if that happens, all we do is keep escalating and it never ends. And God has for something to intervene and that something is love. It intervenes in our lives and causes us to connect with God and then be able to connect with one another and even be able to connect with enemies and turn our enemies into allies. This is God's plan. I was an enemy of the cross. You were an enemy of the cross. And yet somebody loved us enough to help turn us to God, not away from God, and in turning us to God, we connected with God. And in connecting with God, we began to connect with others in the body of Christ in a life-giving relationship. And that's, that's exactly what God has for us. And we, we sang this morning, we're to walk by faith and not by sight. This isn't something you do by what you feel. It's not something you do by what you see. It's not something you do by what you think or what you, you hear. It's something you do because this is what God says we're to do. And if God's told us to do it, number one, we can. Number two, we can't. Is that clear? <laughs> we can because God told us to. We can't because we can't do it without his help. So we recognize what God's asking us to do is possible, but it's only possible with us relying on him and, and looking to him and trusting him. And so 
We have to recognize this is how God wants us to do it. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. But dropping down two verses from that, in verse 9, it says this. Therefore, and that's why the therefore is there. Because we walk by faith and not by sight, not by what we feel, not by what we see, not by what we think, not by what we hear, we walk by faith, and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, all the promises of God. Therefore, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So backing up, we make it our what? Aim. When I say aim, what, what comes to mind? If I'm going to aim at something, Right? There's a focus, there's a goal, there's a, there's a, a destination. I, I said in the first service, if I aim at that sconce, that's a sconce. Did you know that? My wife told me that. <laughs> if I aim at that sconce, I've got to keep focused on it. Am I aiming at the sconce? No, but I'm doing what I want to do. If I aim at the sconce, I have to stay focused. It, it is a goal. There's a purpose. And, and we're to make something our aim. And look what it says. Make our aim to be well-pleasing to him. Who's him? Jesus Christ. Well-pleasing to Jesus Christ. How can we be well-pleasing? Well, number one, it, the Bible says it's impossible to please God without faith. And faith always keeps its focus on the word. So to be well-pleasing to God, we've got to be focused on the word and following the word. To be well-pleasing, uh, Jesus said, if you love me, usually when people love people, it's well-pleasing, correct? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So to be aiming at and well-pleasing to God, we've got to keep his commands. So it's, it's about him. But then it goes on to say... For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We are closer to the return of the Lord than ever before. That's just a natural fact of days ticking off on the calendar. We're coming to the return of the Lord. Jesus is coming back for the church. That's not this building. This building is going nowhere. But the church is going somewhere. We're going to be in heaven with Christ. A church without spot or wrinkle. There are things that God is cleaning up in the church, having to get us get out. Us not get out, but the stuff that's in us still of the world needs to get out. And so we're going to stand before the Lord. Debbie and I aren't standing together. I'm standing and Debbie's standing. I'm standing as a believer, but I'm also standing as a pastor. The responsibilities that I've had in my life, I'm standing as a father. I'm standing as a friend. I'm standing as an ambassador for Christ, which we all will stand before Christ as ambassadors because we're all called to be, but that we're going to receive what we've done in this life, whether good or bad. Now, I, I, I just want to kind of alleviate a little tension because when I read this, there's always this tension that starts to rise up. Oh, my gosh, I'm going to stand before the Lord and, and everything's going to be revealed. Does that cause anybody else any anxiety besides me? Okay, I guess not. 
All right, so <laughs> I'm, I'm the only one that has, at times, because I wasn't aware, became a little anxious about why, you know, what was going to happen. But uh, this is where, in this moment, we can, be, we can be confident, we can come to rest, because as a believer in Jesus Christ, there are two groups of people that are going to stand before the Lord, the saved and the unsaved. The throne of God that, that unsaved people go before is different than the, the throne of God that you and I go before because God's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Not perfectly, but diligently. And, and just let me share with you something from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It won't be up on the screens, but it says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be, become clear on the day, the judgment day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Now, fire is, it does two things. <clears throat> fire is something that purifies, right? But it also purges. And so in the day we stand before the Lord, there's a purifying that happens in our lives because we're not pure in this life. You know, we're, we're, we're to be holy as he is holy, but when we see him, we'll be like him. So there's a purifying work that God does in that moment. And, and he judges our works, our good and our bad, and, and the good things that God had for us to do and we were obedient to do and, and, and in line with him and his word, that's the, the gold, silver, and precious stones. But the things that we did just on our own or we did in the flesh or we did because somebody else told us just to do it and, and you know, we didn't even check with God, uh, that's the hay, the wood, and the straw. And when the fire purges, when it burns, when it purifies, the gold, silver, and precious stones remain, but the hay, wood, and stubble, uh, straw is gone. And so those things, we don't have to be afraid of being penalized for the things we did wrong because God's going to remove that. That's not going to be remembered. But there, well, for another time. So, so we, we have to realize we need to live our life with an aim in life on purpose. And that is an aim to be pleasing to him. And, and that is not an automatic. We have to really be intentional. Consider every day, every morning. I'm trying every morning to say, God, I want to make it my aim to be pleasing to you today. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to please you. I want to, I want to love you. I want to be loved by you. And Lord, I want not just to know you, I want to show you to the people around me. Not push, but show. Because if people see God, they're going to be drawn. When Jesus walked the face of the earth, the only people that were repelled by Jesus were religious people. The people of the world that needed to be saved were coming towards him, wanted him to come towards them. Now, in dropping down in, in the next uh, couple of the next verses, 14 and 15, it says this. For it is Christ's love that fuels our passion and holds us tightly so that those who live should no longer live self-absorbed lives, but lives that are poured out for him, the one who died for us and now lives again. So we make it our aim to be well-pleasing. But now we see right here it's Christ's love that fuels our life. Another translation says it's the love of Christ that compels us or controls us. And in the original translation, 
what it, it indicates is that we're always under the influence of the love of Christ. Always. Every perspective, every thought, every decision, every action, that's God's goal, that everything, everything in our lives is under the influence of, under the control of. If somebody's under the influence of alcohol or drugs, what does it affect? How does it affect them? My wife could answer this question because at one time I was an alcoholic. And, and my life was being run and ruined by alcohol because I, I allowed it to. And I will tell you, here's what, what being under the influence was like. It affected my speech. It affected all my, my motor skills. It affected my vision. It affected my actions, my, my, my perspectives. It, it, it affected absolutely everything. It affected me inside to the place where my body rebelled against what I was doing. I fought me. I was damaging and destroying my life by my choice because I was in the, under the influence of that. But when we come under the influence of God, it has the exact opposite. It does affect our speech. It does affect all our motor nerves. It does affect our perspective, our thinking. It does affect our, our, our every aspect of our lives. But instead of me fighting me, when I'm under the influence of God who is love, he heals me. He betters me. He abounds in life in me. But it's not just me. This is what he wants to do in every one of us. And when that happens, when we're under the influence of love, it affects everything we do. And that, in turn, affects all the people we come in contact with. Instead of damaging Debbie like the alcohol, I allowed the place in my life, and not only damaged me, it began to damage her and began to damage our kids. Now, allowing love, it heals me, it helps me, it strengthens me, it transforms me, and now it begins a healing process, a helping process in, in my family and my friends and every person I come in contact with. And that's, that's why. What it does is it, it says, for Christ's it's Christ's love that fuels our passion and holds us uprightly. Now, understand this. When it says that in the other translations, it's the love of Christ that compels us or controls us. It's not our love for Christ. And this is important because our love for Christ changes. There are days that we're like, Man, I love you, Lord, and I'm, I'm walking with you, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleasing to you. But there are other days that I'm not so in love with Jesus. We're not so in love. We've got other priorities. You know, Jesus, I, I'm going to take a day off today. I'm going to go do what I want to do. That's what happens when we sin. We say no to God and yes to sin. 
And so our love for Christ varies. That's why this is not about our love for Christ. Paul says the love of Christ controls us or compels us because God's love never changes. This is a constant in our lives, something that is absolutely rock solid, unchanging, absolutely dependable. And in a world that is so changing and so variable, we need something that never changes. And that's God and uh, that's his love. And we can count on that and people should be able to count on it in us so that those who should live should no longer live what? Self, we can say it together, self-absorbed lives. I know we don't want to say it because we don't want to admit that's what we live, but we do. Without God, that's the only thing we are destined to do because we live for something. We live for someone. And without us having the aim to be well-pleasing to Christ, to live our life for Christ, we're going to live for ourselves. And we, we revert back to it. It's real easy to fall back into that. And so it says we no longer live self-absorbed lives, but lives that are poured out for him. Now listen, that sounds like, oh man, are you kidding? I got to pour my life out for him. Whenever you give whatever you give to God, the Bible says whatever we do for God in this lifetime, we'll receive a hundredfold in this lifetime and the lifetime to come. What God's trying to say to you is there's no loss when you live for him. It may look like a loss momentarily, but you can't lose giving to God and, and living for God. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, the first thing, the first requirement, he said, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be one of my followers, you have to, number one, deny yourself. Because we can only serve one master. If I don't deny me, me, then I can't serve him. The only way I can serve Christ is to put myself aside. And that's not easy because we've become so used to putting ourselves at the center of our world. Serving ourselves. Most of the decisions we make just automatically, our reference point is what do I want? I have to tell you something that is just absolutely terrifying me and breaking my heart is how many Christians I hear saying, well, this is what I'm doing because I like this or I want this or, and I want to say, but what God tell you? Because what you want and what I want is not going to get us what God has. And as much as it's fulfilling, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that it's not enjoyable to get what you want. But that enjoyable part of getting what you want is very short-lived compared to giving God what he wants. The benefit goes on for eternity. And yet many times we're living very short-sighted lives. And God's saying, no, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't shortchange yourself. Live, live this life of love. Live this life that your aim is pleasing me. Let my love fuel your passion and, and let it hold you tightly. Without it, we'll, we'll, never, we'll never 
experience what God had. And so because of this, because the love of God compels us or controls us or, or, or Christ's love is what fuels our passions and holds us tightly that we no longer live for ourselves, then there's a result in verse 16 that obviously comes right after this, tells us one of the first results. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. If, if we're living in this love, if we're walking in this love, if, if we're choosing to make our aim being pleasing to Christ, then not only do we get transformed, but we're so transformed that we don't do things the way we used to do them. And we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. When, when, when it talks about regarding someone, if you regard someone, what do you have to do? What does it, what does it indicate? You're aware of them, okay? Yeah, you become aware of them. But this says you can't become aware of them the way we've always become aware of people. That's crazy. I read this and I think, I can't do that. But remember, whatever God tells us to do, we can do and we can't do. We can do it because he said it, but we can't do it without his help. Relying on him and trusting in him. And so from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. The, TV, uh, the Passion Translation says this, from now on, we refuse to evaluate people merely by their outward appearances. The uh, New Living Translation says, we have stopped evaluating people from a human point of view. And the Phillips says this, this means that our knowledge of men can no longer be based on their outward lives. So am I supposed to go through life with blinders on my eyes? No. You're aware of people, you just don't judge them. You don't condemn them. You don't belittle them or devalue them because of what you see. Because if the first thing we see is all these earthly attributes or, or assets or aspects, we've missed the most important aspect of all. It doesn't matter any person that you see, what they do, what they've done, what they're doing. They are not what they do. They were not made in the image of what they do. Who were they made in the image of? God. Every human being was made in the image of God. And some of them come into our lives so caked with the crap of the world that it's hard to see them as being made in the image of God, as being valuable to God, but they are. It's no different than the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came home, he came home from the pigsty. He was probably sleeping with the pigs because he was trying to eat with the pigs. And he was caked and encrusted with what was in the pigsty. And what, what was his father's reaction? Saw him far off, probably smelled him before he saw him. No joke. Ran to him. The closer he got to him, let's just talk in natural terms. The closer he got to him, the more repulsive he came, became by smell, probably by sight. And yet none of that mattered to the dad. His first reaction after running to his son, encrusted and encaped with all that he was, he drew him close and hugged him. 
Then he looked to restore him and put a robe over him. If God does that to us in all of the crust and the muck and the mire of the sin of our lives, we need to remember that so that we, we aren't repulsed. We aren't put off by people coming out of the world, out of their sin. Man, I've come out of sin and people have loved me and that's motivated me to come out of more of it. <gasps> you have more sin? We all have more sin. And we all need people that are going to love us in spite of us, and God does, and he needs us to do it. Now, I, I'm, I'm really running out of time, but I'm going to quickly go through this. In Matthew chapter 18, part of how we love people is we forgive them. And one of the things that's going on right now in the body of Christ is there's still divisions between brothers and sisters and brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters. We have not forgiven the way we need to so that we can be joined together so that the power of God can flow through the body of Christ, not just an individual or a couple of individuals, but the body of Christ as a whole to be able to bring in the harvest of this hour. And, and so Jesus was, was speaking to Peter and, and other disciples and other people, and Peter came to him and said, how often, Lord, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times. And, and many of you have read this, you're familiar with this, but it bears going over again. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. Now quick without a calculator. 70 times seven is what? Okay, so we got the number. 490 times. So, so what Jesus is saying is that you have to forgive him up to 490 times with the 491st time, right? Well, that's what he said, 70 times 7. We're just doing what he said. But that means that we have to have a ledger that we're able to keep track of what this one person does in this one area of sin in one day. And you know what? I think some of us could do it. But then he goes on to say, no, 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 go back. Sorry, John. I paused. He said, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servant. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him what? 10,000 talents. So now he's given a parable. He said, you got to forgive 70 times 7. And, and I'm sure there were those people out there that were like, okay, all right, I got it. I, I'm going to check, check these people out. 490 times, 491st, that's it, no more forgiveness. And then he tells about this, this king that has a servant that owes him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, that was equal to, this is what I, I read in, in people who have a lot more knowledge than I do, but that was what was equal to $12 million, okay? So those of you that have $12 million in pocket change, you can take care of this debt. But this was a situation where Jesus is trying to say to him, listen, you have this debt you can't pay. 
unpayable, unable to pay it. It, it, 10,000 talents were 50 million denarii. A denarii was one day's wage. So it was just equal to 13,698 years to be able to pay that off, which I don't think any of us have that amount of time. But he's saying this is an, a debt that couldn't possibly be paid by anybody and would never be paid by anybody. And so it's not about forgiving what they can pay. It's always forgiving. And it goes on to say in verse 25, he says this. But as he was not able to pay the master, commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that they had and that, that payment to be made. And the servant therefore went and fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all which was not true. He couldn't. There was no way he could do this, but he's begging for mercy. And the master of the servant was moved with compassion or mercy, which is love, and forgave him, released him, and forgave him his debt, which is love. It goes on to say, then the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, which is about three months' worth of daily wage, which is a payable debt. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe me. His fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. The exact words that he said to the debt that was not ever able to be paid, this debt was, and the servant that was re, uh, forgiven this great debt is now pressed with the same words and he would not and went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So right here we see this, this parable that Jesus is sharing. He's talking about forgiving and how one was forgiven this massive debt that could never be paid in lifetimes upon lifetimes, and, and he was forgiven. And there's another one who could repay but wasn't allowed to. And... It goes on in verse 33. What, what ends up happening is the, the master uh, finds the servant that brought the other servant in. And he said, if you're not going to be merciful with him, I'm not going to be merciful with you. And he threw him into prison. And he says this to that servant that would not forgive the other servant. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? For us, what this is saying is, God is the great king that forgave us a debt that we could never, never pay on our own. Jesus paid the price for our sin that we could never pay on our own in lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes. Like some religions say, you, you have lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes to try and do better. You have one life. The Bible says it's appointed unto man one time to die and then the judgment. We can't pay this price, but Jesus did pay the price. And, and as we look to Christ and, and we repent of our sin and receive Christ as our Lord, that forgiveness cleanses us. It wipes away our debt. But we, with this massive debt that's been wiped away by the mercy and the love of God, now find our fellow servants who may have done something wrong, may have done something bad, may, have, may owe us something. We feel like they've been unfair. You owe me an apology. You owe me this. You owe me that. And, and 
we don't, we don't release them. We're supposed to forgive as Christ forgave us, as God and Christ forgave us. That was before we ever asked. We're supposed to forgive every time, everything, everyone. But listen, it doesn't mean when you forgive that what you're saying is it was okay. It's not okay. Whatever they did was not okay. It's, it's not saying that, that what they did, you act like it didn't happen. That's impossible for you to do. But you're supposed to love them in spite of it. Forgive them each and every time. Because as we do unto others, we want done unto ourselves. The golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And remember, if we don't forgive others, God can't. He's hindered in forgiving us. And I don't know about you, but I need forgiveness. And that hindrance of God hinders not just that area of our lives. It hinders our lives. Because God has a ministry for you. God has a work for you to do in this hour in, in the harvest being brought in to the kingdom of God. And, and we find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, down a little farther from the other places that we read. It says this. I think it's verse 18. Yeah, verse 18 through 20. It says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, through Jesus Christ, and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So the key word here is reconciliation or reconciled. And that word is a very specific word. It means to change redemptively. And, and that's, that's divinely. And to redeem something means to rescue from loss. Another part of the definition is to establish a relationship of peace. So we have been reconnected to God. That oneness that Jesus prayed for that we would be one with the Father and, and the Son and one with one another. This is where it starts. It starts in love. God so loved he gave his Son. We reconnect. We, we're reconciled with God. Reconnected with God because of the love of God. And in that reconnecting with God, then and only then can we reconnect with one another as they've reconnected with God. You see, those people that I saw in my dream that were all isolated, they're all on their own islands, it's because they didn't have Christ. No human being can truly connect with another human being without God being in the middle of it. It'll never work out the way God intended. Because it's only the love of God that allows relationships to really develop and blossom and become all God intended it to be. Without that love, it won't happen. It'll become selfish and self-serving and self-absorbed. And once that happens, we are able to not only be loved by God, but to love God. And when we love God, when, when I love Debbie, one of the things that happens is I love what Debbie loves. I love who Debbie loves because Debbie loves them. They're important to her. And so I choose to make them important to me. When I love God, I'm, I love who God loves. And who does God love? Everyone. And so I need to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I need to love the world and show that love to them so that they too can be reconciled 
to God, reconnected to God because of that love. It's the love that does this. And then understanding that not only are we reconciled to God, when we're reconciled to God, when we're made one by the love of God with God, we're reconnected, God now says, okay, I have something for you to do. This is why we're still here. We get saved. We should have gone straight to heaven because if God didn't have something for us to do, we could enjoy eternity. But he does. He has a ministry for you. Ministry of reconciliation, of making friends again. That's part of the definition of reconciliation, making friendly again or making friends. And that's what God has for us to do in the body of Christ, in the world at large. And he's given us the word of reconciliation, the word that causes us to reconnect with God and with one another. I'd like every head bowed, every eye closed. <coughs> Throughout our lives, we're supposed to walk in love. And we can't do it without God, but with God, we can do it. The love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Ghost. But we can resist him. And yet God wants to fully and freely and powerfully pour him, himself into us and his love into us and through us that will cast out all fear. That love will empower us and enable us to be able to cover all those sins, to envelop them and transform them from something damaging and detrimental into something beautiful and beneficial. That love forgives everyone, every time. Of all things, it's a supernatural work of God's love. And that love connects. It, it, it reconciles. And, and many times that reconciliation comes because of blessing. We, we remember that the word of God says we are not overcome with evil, but we overcome evil with good. It's the goodness of God that leads us in repentance and change and turning around. If you've never turned to Christ, he's waiting patiently, lovingly, expectantly. He'll never push you or drive you or force you to do anything, but he's been waiting, waiting for you to recognize what he's done, to turn around from doing your own thing and to turn to him and trust him with your life. That turning around part, that's, that's what the word repentance means, to turn around, to change. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never turned your life over to him, we're going to pray today, and I invite you to pray from your heart and, and know that this is a new beginning. It's also the end of, of sin dominating your life, being controlled by it. And now giving the control over to Christ, to his love. Let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus who came into this earth, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for me. Today, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. I receive you as Lord Come into my life 
Be Lord of my life. From this day forward, I am yours. You are mine. Guide me. Govern me. Guard me as we walk life out together. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. If you prayed that prayer today here, uh, you may not know everybody here. You may not know anybody here. But if you prayed, please let somebody know. I can guarantee if you let them know that you did that, they're going to celebrate your new life. If you prayed at home, let us know. Go to the website, reslifeny.org. Uh, scroll down to where the prayer requests are. Let us know that you prayed. Uh, we're going to be praying for you. If you give us your name, we'll pray for you by name. If you want us to contact you, give us your name and some contact information and someone will get with you this week. God is so good. He's doing great things. And we have the privilege and honor and opportunity to be co-laborers with him in this day in the amazing things that he's doing because he is doing amazing things. Would you stand? I just want to pray for you before you go. Pray for you at home. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every one of your children. I thank you for your presence in them. Your plan for good for them. Your power that is in them through your spirit that is unequaled and unending. Your plan that is perfect and your provision that is abundant. Lord, we thank you that whatever we face this week, you already know you've gone ahead of us and prepared the way. And you've provided everything we need. That, Father, we can walk in a fallen world as the light and the salt. That, Father, your love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. That overflowing of your love will cause Jesus to be lifted up and all people to be drawn unto him. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're doing because we know it's all good and we know the best is yet to come. And so, Father, we look with anticipation to the future knowing that it is full of hope. And we thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Have a great week. Remember the baptism sign up. You need to sign up and uh, we're going to have a great time out there. Have a great week.